Well, I'd like to welcome everybody back to Building Bridges. Uh, this podcast is dedicated to um, our desire to model and foster civil discourse across uh, political and partisan lines. Uh, we think that there's not enough room uh, in, the, uh, in today's dialogue to find common ground or to be able to uh, disagree with each other while still remaining connected to each other. And we think that quality is important to the preservation of our uh, American experiment in a democratic republic. Um, so today's topic is going to be um, immigration. Uh, and I want you to know, first of all, um, on behalf of my friends and colleagues, uh, Ray Pearson, who will express a somewhat conservative Republican viewpoint, uh, Jan Watkin, who will uh, convey a somewhat liberal uh, Democratic viewpoint and my uh, independent viewpoint uh, on this topic. But we want to let you know in advance that uh, the, the opinions that we express are not are our own opinions. They are not connected to any institutional roles that we may occupy. Uh, Ray sits on a, a school board. Uh, I am the president of a community college, but neither of us uh, is uh, intending to uh, reflect th those institutional roles. These are simply our own uh, individual uh, opinions. So just to get us started, although usually I begin this podcast with a question that I pose to either Ray or Jan, uh, I'm going to start us off this time by expressing my own uh, viewpoint on the on the subject of immigration and see if that gets us started. So, so first, to my friends on the left end of the political spectrum, I usually tell them the uh, that every nation has an obligation to protect its borders, uh, to only admit uh, people into the nation that it it is able to absorb um, economically environmentally, uh, to some extent politically, uh, that the, the notion of open borders, which not too many people advocate, is unworkable. Um, and, uh, and therefore, there needs to be an orderly process and a criteria uh, for letting people into the nation, how many we can absorb at a given time. Um, to my friends on the right, um, maybe one of the reasons that I've stayed out of the Republican Party is because so often it's policy on immigration, really more it's dialogue than it's policy on immigration, uh, sounds xenophobic to me. It sounds like, well, we've got our slice of America and now we don't want to keep those people that are uh, from, this, from these other nations. And typically they're referring to people from uh, Central uh, or South America uh, in that dialogue at least. Um, and uh, so that, that's a little too insular for me, the idea that... Uh, that we've got our slice of America and now we wanna close the gates to everybody else. And to the sanctimony around, uh, although, the, although I do respect the, uh, the rule of law, uh, and I do think that we need to have an orderly process for people to come into this nation and become citizens, um, I, I, I'm not appreciative of too much sanct sanctimony around uh, having broken the law to get into this nation. I remind my friends on the right, you know, what law would you not break to feed your family uh, and on the right, they didn't seem to have a problem with people who broke the law by staying open during the pandemic to keep their restaurants open because um, they, they thought, that, well, that's a law that you should be able to break because it's about feeding your family. And I would submit, this, so, so is the case in immigration. So I'm gonna, with that, I'm gonna punt uh, first to uh, Jan to, get, to hear her viewpoint on uh, immigration generally from the left-leaning uh, progressive Democrat uh, view of the world. Yeah, my thoughts about it are that um, 
we are a nation of immigrants. We have an obligation to allow people into this country um, when, particularly if they want to come here, just as a blanket statement, but also if they are experiencing uh, you know, prejudice, harassment, death, threats of death in their own countries. Honduras, you know, Central America, Honduras, Guatemala have terrible problems right now. And I think, you know, immigration in general, uh, I don't think most Americans have a problem with. But because of people coming into this, this country, which you might call illegally, um, from Hispanic countries, I think that there is some real xenophobia and racism uh, that, that have tainted our immigration policy in the last um, administration. Uh, I, I think that we need to allow people into our country that are starving in their country, are facing death and violence and rape. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of people who come here without documentation and come over our border, they do show up to the court system. They do come to the hearings. They're trying to become citizens or they're trying to get a residency card so that they can become citizens. Um, and so I think we really need to have a lot more respect for the people who are trying to come to this country. They're coming here because they're starving or there are threats of violence in their country and the corruption. They're trying to escape corruption. Uh, so, I, you know, my feeling is, is that we really have to come up and I think this administration needs to come up with a policy that will respect people and give them a legal way to become productive citizens here. So, so Ray, to put to you though, when I, when I hear my, my democratic friends say that we need a, a immigration reform, I, I think what they mean is, you know, let's allow everybody that's already here to stay here. Pass to you. So I think just to bring some context to my experience on immigration, it's important to make it very personal. Uh, I'm only a second generation American on my mother's side. My grandparents were from um, Mideastern countries. And when they came, it's lucky they came because if they had stayed in their countries, they would have been victims of the Holocaust um, in, in particular, because they're a Jewish background. So, you know, they came through Ellis Island they came legally through the process um, that existed at the time uh, to do that. So I'm obviously going to be um, both as a history student and also as a family of immigrants is uh, very uh, positive about immigration. And I, I agree with Jan. We are all of us, unless you're Native American, um, are come from an immigrant background, and so. You know, our country is, was built and has been a fairly successful country in, you know, in our short history comparative to other countries. And I, I would say you direct that to the strength of the, the multitude of different immigrants that have come to this country and have contributed to uh, what we see as we know as the United States of America. I think um, to, to Luis's point is that successful uh, civilizations and those that have failed is because they couldn't secure their borders. And I'll speak to, to Rome in particular. They spread this whole huge empire that 
transcended several continents and they were not able to protect their borders and created a whole slew of problems. And, and that, that might be a little narrow in terms of why there's, there, the Roman Empire failed. But I, I do think the stress on infrastructure, when you have a good immigration policy, there's, there's a couple things. My daughter-in-law, my youngest son married a woman from Colombia, the country. And she is here uh, legally and wants to be an American citizen um, and is going through a very arduous, expensive process. That is not right. I can tell you right now. You know, um, I can tell you thousands of dollars in legal fees to become a legal citizen is just not right. Mm -hmm. and, and part of it is uh, the court system. There's not enough uh, immigration judges to fill the backlog. So I, I think the infrastructure that supports immigration uh, needs to be reviewed. Um, it's not a partisan issue. And, and, and I do take exception. I know some people in my party uh, may have some um, racist, but I think the majority of us, it's not about racism. It's probably rule of the law. It's also, Paul, what is fair? That how many people came to this country through the legal process and you were, uh, were affording people who come illegally to have the same rights as legal. That's just not fair um, to do that. You might as well just forget the whole immigration policy as is. The, the piece that I think there's different classifications of immigration. I, I was just looking. There's naturalized citizens. Mm -hmm. There's humanitarian. There's uh, green card, visa, all those different things. I think to Jan's point about humanitarian immigration, I think when people, I think one of our strengths as our country in the, in the world has been our humanitarian, no matter who's sitting in the White House. It's, it's a matter of that we, are, we see that people who are suffering because of governments. So when I look at immigration policy, it's not just borders and getting people, it's also how we affect these countries that create these problems that send, want people to leave their countries to come to our country, only because out of fear, mostly, um, their lives, their kids' lives. I mean, it's terrible sending their kids unoccupied because they just want to get them out of their country because their countries are in such disarray. I think we have a responsibility to work on that problem as well as just the immigration, I don't see immigration as just a singular silo. It's also about our, our, foreign, our foreign our affairs and our policy, particularly as it relates to Latin America, specifically. And, and Jan, Ray's been really careful about saying that he's, his brand of conservative Republicanism is not a, a, an endorsement of the Trump years. And so I, no. I want to be clear and fair about that. But you, can't, but you can't ignore the, the the, di the dialogue, the, the really the vicious rhetoric that came out of the Trump administration with respect to building a wall and stopping the rapists uh, um, that came from Mexico and Central America, uh, that I, I think is part of the, um, uh, certainly in, in my case, it's, it's part of the reason that makes me, although when I, even when I agree fundamentally with the Republican party on economic principles, keeps me really at a distance from the Republican party. The Trump well, wall. Your comments on the Trump wall. I mean, all, all of the, all of the, um, the policy 
uh, for immigration during the Trump years were the brainchild, you know, the, his right-hand man, Stephen Miller. Uh, that was his policy. And Trump went along with it. And I don't know if the two of you know anything about, you know, Stephen Miller, but he is an incredibly disagreeable man um, and has been, even his high school, you know, friends or students that went with him to school back then uh, has said that he was particularly <laughs> egregious even then. But he's very racist and uh, Trump used his ideas to, um, to foment this racism and the wall and, and uh, the rapists and the violence that was going to happen, uh, all of that, because that, that's right out of Miller's mouth. So, um, you know, I, I think that he was, he allowed um, his ideas to influence Trump and Trump allowed, you know, his, his, uh, his rhetoric to weaponize health, you know, our health directive as an immigration policy. And I'll get into that later. So, so Ray, I know you, I'm pretty sure you're not going to defend the wall, but I, but I do want to recognize that the, like the minute President Biden took office, the flow of immigrants increased dramatically, and we now have a harder uh, challenge uh, from an immigration standpoint than we did under the negative rhetoric of President Trump. Um, so your thoughts on the wall, first of all, and then your critique of the, of the current problem we have under President Biden, because it turns out, I guess, that the messages you send out have a sort of a meta message effect that they, uh, that they, they, they send out in, uh, a type of encouragement to, to immigrants. So I, I still think you have to put this into context historically. Uh, who, which president gave the most an, amnesty to quote unquote illegals? It was Ronald Reagan. He signed the amnesty on before. So, you know, this, you know, everyone wants, parties want to take credit for the dreamers, you know, and they got great marketing. But the truth, yes. the truth is it was Ronald Reagan who uh, signed the legislation that allowed illegals to stay in this country legally uh, to do that. And that, that's it. And, and, and I'm also reminded, you know, you asked me to defend the wall. So what would you say to families that have loved ones murdered by illegals? Would you be compassionate? Would you say, how did that happen? Or that would have happened anyway? You got to say, how do you prevent that? And it's not onesies and twosies on this kind of stuff. These are gangs that come from El Salvador. These are gangs that are violent from some of the Central American countries to do that. And you have to have a policy that prevents that. And if you don't, then you're, to me, you're endorsing. You're basically saying, hey, you know what? That, that is a result of you know, it just what would happen anyway. And that's kind of naive to me. And I can't support policies that don't protect all citizens of this country. And it's not onesie twosies in California that have been murdered by illegals. And, and, and so that being the case, the wall, um, it, if the wall, in fact, and I don't have the data to support this, if the wall brought down the, the amount of illegal 
illegal immigrants to this country, then it's a good thing. I don't have the data to support it. If the wall really didn't have any impacts or anything, then it's a bad thing. Is the wall a bad uh, optic for this country? Absolutely. I wouldn't disagree with it. It's a bad optic. It's like we're closing off our country to everybody. But we have to deal some realities to the STEM. And you're right, when President Biden became in office, there was a whole flood. And what did he have to do? He had to close the flood off because he recognized you just can't have open borders. And some of Jan, some of the party who were on that open border thinking were upset at the president. Oh, absolutely. By enforcing the borders. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I, but I think that that's, that is a re- realization that we do have more in common than uncommon about a policy that protects our borders, is still humane, makes it easier for people to become citizens of this United States and become uh, immigrants in the United States. And I don't think, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, both Republican and Democrat have failed, no matter who's in office, to have a better uh, fast track process. Mm-hmm. to do that. And, and that's just my opinion. They haven't dealt with the court part, part of this enough. I'm going to pass it to Jan. I, I, I raises a, a, a good point, uh, certainly about uh, how we effectively keep uh, in the throngs of folks that want to come to the United States, how we keep those that are truly criminally disposed uh, out. I see that. I see immigration and criminal activity um, as two separate issues. I think that they can perhaps over, overlap, but I don't imagine that any of the uh, cartel uh, gang members from Mexico or Central America uh, really particularly want to uh, get in, involved in immigration here and become citizens or even get a green card. They're criminal activity, and as such, I think they need to be dealt with with you know, our law enforcement. The vast majority of immigrants that I see at the border that I that I look at, you know, in, in media and whatever, uh, are families. They are women with children. They are children alone, and they're living in tent camps in, near the border in you know uh, in Mexico, uh, with very little, very little food, very little medical care, and just tents for shelter that Mexico has has provided for them. So I see it as two separate issues. And I don't think the wall is effective. Uh, they can be, the, the wall can be cut and people can enter anytime they want to through, you know, uh, lithium powered uh, grinders, you know, or saws with the pr- proper blades on them. Uh, and they are, they're cutting holes in it. They're going over it. Uh, I just saw a picture this morning of two men scaling the, uh, the wall, easily done and hopping over into the U.S. side. Um, So, I mean, for me, this is a hemispheric refugee crisis because Central America needs to be stabilized. Companies from around the world need to find that it's safe there to go, put their companies in there and get some infrastructure so that these countries can, um, you know, provide economic support for their governments. Uh, Kamala Harris has just gone uh, today, actually, to Central America to, um, to try to, to try to deal with some of this, these deep-seated problems that really contribute to this immigration issue. Um, 
to going to Mexico and Guatemala. And then her next trip will be to um, Honduras and El Salvador. Uh, and she's going to be speaking to the presidents, uh, you know, leaders of, of the countries, but also economic leaders of the countries and try to find a, a way to make these countries safe again so that infrastructure can be um, encouraged by companies. Um, you know, if they don't get rid of the crime, the violence and the, uh, you know, the food shortages, the, you know, and the crime and stuff, we're not going to be able to help these immigrants, really. We can bring them into this country, but their countries need to be fixed. So, so Ray, Jan, speaking now to the push factors of, of immigration, the, we know that the pull factors are, are the, the land of opportunity, there's, there's uh, employment uh, prospects, uh, the, the worst poverty in the United States uh, is, is affluence in comparison to the worst poverty in some of the nations that we're talking about. Um, but, but there is also that push factor uh, of the, 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 the country from which, or countries from which the immigrants are coming uh, are so, uh, the economies are so abysmal, the crime is rampant in some instances that it, draw, it would draw any sane person out of that area to take care of their families. Uh, what's our obligation to uh, help those, those nations? Not necessarily from a moralistic standpoint, but from a practical standpoint of, of helping ourselves. I think our moral, I think our moral um, imperative is that we need to help these countries in Central America uh, fight back to the natural disasters that they've had recently. Floods, hurricanes, uh, so many are left homeless. Uh, there is no, in some areas, there is no potable water at all. Um, mudslides have decimated crops, crop you know, uh, development. We need to help them with that. It's a disaster uh, down there because of the, the, the weather changes. And we need to we need to shore them up. I mean, the United States has now just uh, pledged three hundred and ten million dollars to uh, help with food shortages and disaster recovery, and that just happened this morning. Actually, uh, she's you know going down there to tell them that uh, we're also going to be giving them a lot of vaccines that um, are produced in the United States for uh, getting getting these countries these three or four countries really uh, vaccinated so that they can go forward without having to deal with that. Um, so, you know, we can help with that. And we can also help with cutting, you know, some of the violence and the corruption there um, to get U.S. companies in and to help people feel safe again in their homes. I mean, personally, I know someone whose son uh, and nephew were shot, um, killed for their one for their iPhone and one for their watch. They had an Apple watch on uh, that was in Honduras. And, you know, 20 something, two young men just shot on the street. They took the watch, they took the phone, that was that. Um, I wouldn't want to live there either. I would Same rather question. live in a tent city in Mexico. Same question to Ray. And Ray, I'm, I'm a little worried about the size of the deficit and the size of the concurrent debt that we're gonna pass along to our kids and grandkids. Yeah. Your response. Um, I agree with you, Luis. I mean, me too. At some point, someone has to pay the piper, and there's not an unlimited amount of, of tax money to keep in. However, the Democratic Party is figuring out more ways to 
get more money out of people uh, in in their their uh, I think in their 20, 22, 23 budget or 21, 22 budget in terms of tax. But I, I like to kind of reflect back about Central America because it's it's been an ongoing problem for us in this country decades. This is not new news. Uh, it just gets worse. However, when you look at successful Central American countries, let's take Costa Rica, for example, you say, well, how could they do it? Well, first of all, they got rid of corruption in their government. And, and if we're not, if we're going to continue and send Central American countries, you know, we have to be very parochial on corruption and say, we're not going to give you support if you've got this corruption going on in government. I feel for the Mexican people in particular, because in some of the states of Mexico, the cartels run the states mm -hmm. to do that. And I, I, I do know um, that we asked the Mexican government to work on keeping their borders on the southern borders from people just coming through from Central America and basically walking all the way to the US border, essentially. It breaks my heart to know here, I'm in San Diego area. Last week, or maybe it was a week before, people try, try to use a boat to come to San Diego from Mexico. The boat fell apart and several people drowned to do that. But I want you to know, you know how much they paid and the word is coyote, is they paid the coyote 10 to 15,000 American dollars to do that. My question is, how do I get that money to do that? And, and they, it was enough incentive for them to spend that kind of money to get to the US. And it, it might be the humanitarian, the part about they wanted to get away from the violence, they wanted to start over, and this was the best to do that. So I agree with Jan that we need to work on a better Central American strategy. And humanitarian aid plays a part, but more the tie to humanitarian aid. If we're going to give that kind of aid, we're not going to be supporting governments that are corrupt or support cartels that are corrupt that run a lot of the states, like in Mexico or in Central America, that run their countries. So. Um, that's the only tie. Now that's difficult negotiations, granted. But if we were really, really want to see a fundamental change, and I love to say that economics play part, and I'm glad Jan said about companies coming in, U.S. companies that will come in if they feel that they're going to be safe, and they're great. They will. They'll bring employment, just like we did in Mexico. We'll bring employment to that, to do that. So back to uh, I think your question. Louise, what you asked me is that the questions you're asking, I have to look at it from a holistic approach, which is a lot of uh, not taking immigration just as an immigrant because it's tied to economics, it's tied to, to corruption, it's tar tied to crime, and this kind because of, it's just like the, the war on drugs, why it has not been successful, you know, it's still supply and demand. It comes down to it. When I think about uh, preventing drugs, it's not at the border. It's it's in our country. How do we create less demand for the drugs? And we, you know, we don't do a great. We haven't been real successful at. Be honest with you. You know, and long as there's demand, the drugs are going to flow. 
you know, and that's, you know, we, we can use all the military, all the policing, everything else, but the drugs are still gonna flow here in this country. So I just wanna say in this conversation, I have to, I look at as a Republican, the real solution, not a Band-Aid, not what it looks good optics, but really what we have to attack to solve the problem. All right, as usual, uh, we've only uh, scratched the surface of a highly complex, pervasive uh, issue, but I'm going to pivot uh, personally, too. I neglected to mention at the beginning of the podcast that Ray, Jan, and I are uh, graduates of the 1972 class of Huntington Park High School, and in our first podcast, uh, each of us uh, did a little chronology for uh, how we spent the first five years after graduating high school from 72 to 77, roughly. So I'm asking Ray and Jan now uh, to describe, to give us a little uh, synopsis of their life from 1977 to 1982, roughly. What were those next five years like for you? Uh, I'll start with Jay, with Ray. Ray? Jan, first. Oh, okay. Um, uh, well, for 1977, um, I was in college. I was in social work school. I had made up my mind that I didn't want to be a dentist, an oral surgeon, and went to the social work uh, school at Cal State Long Beach and uh, signed up there. So I was in the middle of that and had a severe car accident. I was ejected from a car and uh, ended up uh, having some damage to my body. And it took about a year for me to recover from that. Um, so I, I did that. I was still, I, I did manage to, to finish a couple of classes that year and then got back on it uh, full time after that. So it, I had a little detour there, um, taught me the importance of seat belts, um, which were not legal then. You know, we didn't have to do it legally. So uh, in fact, some of the cars didn't even have them. So that, that taught me a great lesson. Uh, and it changed my life, actually. It was a sort of a life-changing event. Um, and I went on to, um, you know, get my master's degree in um, marriage and family therapy and got my license. Uh, 3,000 hours and two licensing tests later, I uh, was able to have my license and start working um, in private practice. But so that's pretty much what I was doing. And I was also uh, dealing with the beginning of the AIDS crisis and lost um, quite a quite a number of friends at that time within a very short span of time, including my best friend, um, and um, did some political action on that as well. So, uh, it sounds like a, a particularly formative period of time for you. It, and, and you're still in private practice, so it's shaped the career that you that's maintained you for Absolutely, the, the yes. of life, really. Mm -hmm. How about Ray? So I didn't finish my Bachelor of Science uh, until 77. And the reason was, uh, let's see, was it 76? Man, might have been 75. I had a surfing accident while in, in college and it put me behind. I had to drop out of some classes uh, as I recovered from the, from the accident. Uh, I broke my face, <laughs> literally did break my face. It was my orbital bone. In, in my cheek in three places. And I almost lost uh, sight in one eye. Fortunately, uh, some good, good, good doctors uh, were able to heal me up, but it, it put me behind in school. And so it, it took me an additional year to finish out uh, my Bachelor of Science. Um, I was probably pretty much headed career-wise. Um, um, 
mostly targeted towards high-risk kids, um, Hispanic gang uh, communities, uh, and gang members. I, I found a place that I was pretty passionate about helping these young people, uh, offering them different options in their life. And I did that kind of work from about, really from about 77 to um, 81. Um, worked for Metropolitan YMCA of Los Angeles, uh, boys, now, now the Boys and Girls Club of America, and also a community-based agency called Bienvenidos Community Center, uh, those three. At the same time, I was still, I was pretty active politically because a lot of these programs were funded through either federal, state, or, or uh, county uh, funds and supported by cities. So um, I was involved, and about the same time uh, in the United States, there was some um, rulings with the FCC that opened up metropolitan areas for cable TV to begin to uh, build and operate cable TV systems in metropolitan areas. And I, I didn't really know much about cable TV because I had watched most of my TV with an antenna mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, but it was pretty exciting um, at the time. And I was gonna be in government affairs working for a cable TV company. And that kind of launched my private sector uh, career uh, starting with a, a division of Westinghouse Broadcasting. And I ended up uh, in sales and marketing and I ended up in general management after government affairs. And that's kind of launched me into the telecommunications industry. It's interesting. I guess it should not be surprising that for, for both of you, and I'll, this will be true for me as well, that that, that period of life, that, those years, uh, were really foundational, Ray, because uh, you ended up in, in politics and it ended up being a uh, precursor to your um, uh, work in the corporate arena. Um, in, in my case, they, those years paralleled pretty closely with uh, law, attending law school from 1978 uh, to 1982. Um, and uh, then taking and passing the bar exam and I practice law and it's law has been sort of a foundation for what I've done professionally, even though I um, have primarily emphasized higher education in my latter part of my career. And it was also when I met my first wife, 1977, we were married in 1980. So it spanned the early uh, development of my understanding of uh, how to uh, how to navigate a domestic relationship. Not successfully, unfortunately, but uh, I learned some lessons that I think uh, helped me today. Um, so before we sign off for the day, uh, I asked you also about a favorite spot on the Huntington Park High School campus as we shout out uh, the our HPHS uh, teachers and uh, alumni. Well, my favorite place was the PE office. I had so many... Uh, I had finished pretty much all my classes by the time I became a mm, latter part of my senior year. So my last part of my senior year, I, I pretty much had just, you know, uh, office duties, you know, for, for, you know, just for helping out and stuff, because I had to stay in school until I could graduate. So I was over at the PE office quite a bit. And I was, you know, I played softball, I, I, I played tennis, I actually taught tennis to some of the, the gym classes over there um, and had a great time. And so I just felt 
like it was a, a nice place to go and just be around friendly people and not be at the quad all the time um, <laughs> because my boyfriend at the time uh, had gone into the Marines. So I, I didn't have him to hang out with. So um, I, that's pretty much where I was hanging out most of the time. All right, the office yeah. to the gym, to the um, PE. Yeah. How about yeah. you, Ray? So I enjoyed um, Stockton Court and, and it was a quad area that I, I think Jan was referring to, Stockton yeah. Court. And the reason I liked it, it was because I could float amongst different groups of people and talk to them about, a, mm -hmm. usually I was campaigning for something, you know, <laughs> there was always an agenda. I always had an agenda running of some sort or another, you know, either I was running for student government something, or I was on the school newspaper or something, um, or I wanted people to validate me. So find, you know, volume, work on volume and somewhere along the line, someone's going to say something nice to you. So um, that's, that was kind of what I really enjoyed and um, was, and, and I tell you what was really eye-opening a lot of times was moving past Stockton Court out to where now there was a gazebo, I think is out there and, and different cliques, a group of people. And I remember running for student body president one year and, you know, campaigning out there and, and getting out there and, you know, doing that kind of stuff. But it was, uh, it also taught me um, some hard lessons, political lessons that later on have served me. Well, we'll want to hear about those at, at some point in time. You know, I've, I've seen reference to the gazebo in some of the uh, Facebook sites for HPHS, but to be honest, I just can't remember uh, it. I, I don't think I ever made my way to it. So I, I lived on, uh, first we lived on either 60th or 61st and then on, on the other one. Um, so I lived within a few feet of the high school yeah. Um, and uh, that was awfully convenient. But I think one of the one of the places that I that I'm most fond of, and I'm not really sure why it's not representative of how much time I spent was the was this uh, school newspaper uh, classroom, the the bungalow it was in. Um, there, there was a certain, um, you know, so we graduated in 72. And that was shortly before all the president's men. Um, and um, a key period of time for journalism, uh, we learned about the immense uh, power of, uh, of the field of journalism and newspapers. So there was something about that experience. Uh, and uh, I was the entertainment editor for a while. So it gave me an opportunity to go to the Ice House in Pasadena, which um, was a lot of fun. Uh, visited again a few years ago. Uh, so, I, so out of several really good spots on the campus, that little classroom uh, felt uh, kind of like home. All hail Mrs. Hunt. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I do. I had, I, you know, I had her for three years, Mrs. Yeah. Hunt, because I, I was in journalism for all three years, you know, and ended up ed editor of the school newspaper. And um, that was that was a great experience, you know, not only about writing, um, but even just um, even understanding the power that our little newspaper had, our school newspaper had in, in our school community. Well, maybe one of these days we'll talk about uh, issues related to the press, um, since that's another topic for, for us. Um, and, um, but for today, I think we'll sign off from the podcast. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in again. Uh, and uh, we will be back um, in a couple of weeks uh, with another topic. 
and we hope that this is um, useful to you in modeling uh, uh, and fostering uh, civil discourse across a range of perspectives on some of the complex and even controversial issues that our, our nation faces today. Thanks very much. I'm going to stop recording.